Hey, Ariel. Hey, Austin. So I'm sure you're familiar with the idea of work songs, right? Something people sing to help them keep things moving at a certain pace while they're working. Yeah, of course. I know that enslaved people sometimes sang songs in the fields, and I've heard of sailors on boats singing as well. Well, I'm glad that you brought up both of those things because what I want to talk to you about today has roots in both of those traditions. Listen to this. Every day is a payday here, but I ain't had nothing in the 40 years. 40 years, gal, 40 years. I ain't had nothing in the 40 years. Come here, dog, and let's get your bones. Tell me what shoulder that you wanted on. Everybody talking about hot and high. Nobody knows nothing about that. Roster about. Roster about, baby. Roster about. Nobody knows about that. Roster about. Ooh, wow. Who was that and what is a roust about? That's a man named Walter Brown who was recorded by folklorist Alan Lomax in the 1970s in Greenville, Mississippi. Brown was a roustabout on the steamboats of the early 20th century, moving all kinds of freight on and off the boats, up and down the Mississippi and Ohio rivers. Roustabouts during this time were predominantly younger black men. That sounds like a tough job. I have taken two cotton hooks. You know what a cotton hook is? And stowed them back over a 500 pound bale of cotton. Then it over on my back and towed it. Despite their crucial role in the river shipping industry in the 19th and 20th century, the roustabouts have largely been forgotten, except for a few people who have worked to preserve their music and story. And with the end of the steamboat era, the proliferation of trains, and the introduction of barges and diesel engines, the roustabouts are kind of a relic of a bygone age. That's so interesting. It's part of a river culture you don't hear a lot about. In this episode, we'll ask, who were the Roustabouts? What does their music tell us about their lives and work? And who were the people who recorded their legacy for future generations? Today, the River and the Rousters. On Middle of Everywhere, telling big stories from the small places we call home. I'm Ariel Lavery. And I'm Austin Carter. So, Ariel, before the railroads, diesel engines, and over-the-road trucking, the Mississippi and Ohio rivers and their tributaries were like a massive highway extending through most of the country. And with the introduction of steam-powered paddlewheel boats to the U.S. in the early 19th century, a whole industry and culture was born on the rivers. Yeah, I've seen some of the modern boats that are modeled after old paddlewheel boats, but it's a history that I don't really know a lot about. Well, I spoke to a musician and maritime history enthusiast named Charlie Ipcar, and he recounted the origins of steamboats in America. In the States, it started with the Hudson River steamboats, the Claremont. 
You may recall from history class that an American engineer named Robert Fulton was credited with developing the Claremont. Uh, no, I think I was asleep that day in history class, sorry. <laughs> but I'm with you, keep going. Well, it didn't take long for the use of steamboats to expand. They began working their way down the Mississippi River, and, and that would be in the 1820s. But eventually they, you know, they finally made it all the way down to New Orleans and, and proved that one could navigate this weird, winding, ever-winding river called the Mississippi. Crystal Watson, who is the education coordinator for the River Discovery Center in Paducah, Kentucky, told me that before the steamboats, one of the ways people would take their goods downriver was on flatboats. When they would get to their destination, typically the boats were broke apart. They would break them apart and they would sell the timber, they'd pay their crew, they'd you know, sell their goods, and then you had to find your own way back home. Not very safe thing to do, uh, especially if you had to come all the way from New Orleans. You had to do the Natchez Trace, and if you read about that, there's just a ton of dangers along the way, like trying to get back home. Oh, man, that's a long way to go if you've come from the upper Ohio or Mississippi rivers. Exactly. Whether you were on foot or trying to get a boat upriver, it could take quite a while. Let's say you're coming from down south, it may take you nine months, you know, depending on weather, current, to get back to get back home or get back up north. So it went from a nine-month trip to a one-month trip when the steamship took hold. The steamboats changed everything, but they weren't without their downsides. Ariel, do you know the basics of how a steam engine works? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I know how the mechanics work. Well, it's pretty simple. You have a firebox that burns coal or timber and a boiler that holds water. As the boiler is heated, it makes steam, and the pressure from the steam moves a piston that in turn moves some other parts, yada, 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 and things move. <laughs> right, got it. <laughs> Unfortunately, the early steamboats had one nasty habit. Early on, they would explode. <laughs> they would get too hot. The steamers, the boilers would get too hot. Um, they would explode. Uh, they were wooden. Yikes. <laughs> Seems a little inconvenient. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, fire, pressure, wood, altogether a dangerous combination if unrestrained. So in the early days of steamboats, you were doing well if a boat lasted for a few years. And not to joke around about it too much because obviously many people died in these accidents. But the ability to travel up and down river so much more quickly created a huge boom for the shipping industry. And in turn, people were needed to load and unload the boats of all this freight. So in come the roustabouts. I've been all up and down. This place right here. I've been all up and down. And I've been from here to Cairo, Illinois, and from Cairo, Illinois, back to New Orleans. That's Walter Brown again, our former roustabout, talking from Greenville, Mississippi, about traveling up and down the Mississippi River. And that somewhat transient lifestyle might have been one of the appeals of being a rouster. But as Crystal explained, it was a tough job. Um, if you've seen some of the pictures or read any of the firsthand accounts, I mean, these men were usually in pairs, carrying 500 pounds of cotton bale on their back or up to where they can get to the hooks to bring them on board the boat. They were doing a lot of this stuff by hand. And even when some boats were still using enslaved laborers, which would have been not uncommon before the Civil War, there was a unique advantage in spite of the terrible conditions of slavery to being aroused about. 
So let's say like your regular part of your trip, you know, you would get payment and that payment would go to an agent. Or if your person who owns you would say, okay, they're allowed to collect their pay, right? But if they worked on Sundays, which was typically an off day, some not all would get to keep that money. So that would be something. So you could they could use that money to A, you know, buy things they wanted. They could use that money to send to family. Uh, they could use that money to help purchase freedom for others. I mean, so they gave them a little bit more mobility. And even up until the early 20th century, when Walter Brown and his friend Arthur were roustabouts, they looked fondly on some parts of the lifestyle. I was eating and sleeping. Didn't have to pay no rent. <laughs> Didn't have to pay no bull no deal. No bull deal or nothing. And go in the kitchen and get anything he wanted. But Ariel, one of the most interesting and important parts of the history of the Rousters are their songs. Oh yeah, we heard a short bit earlier and I'm really curious about that. There were many songs sung on the riverboats, but the work songs were coordinated to the motions of the Rousters and what they would call rocking the load, as Arthur and Walter explained. See, the skipping, when you rock it and skip it, that, 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 makes that gives you release, see? When you do that, if you just straight tilt the carrot, it's more heavy, but you got to, to work it back and forth and skip it. See, that gives you relief. He used to ask me, he said, partner, he said, do you think it's too heavy? If you do, we're going to put it down. I said, no. I said, we're not going to put it down. He said, we, we, we got to rock it round and round. And we carried on, on down. We didn't care what it was. Charlie, our nautical music authority, explained how those types of activities change the style and tempo of maritime music. There are sea shanties that are very quick, like when you're hauling a sail up, it's one, two, three, four, and very fast. If it's a song that has to do with rolling cotton down the gangway and and along the levee, those are probably more like one, two, one, two, one, two, kind of things. You can hear this in Walter's chant from earlier, and I'll replay a bit here so you can feel the rhythm a bit. Come here, dog, and let's get your bone. Tell me what shoulder that you wanted on. Everybody talking about parties high. Nobody knows nothing about the roster about. Roster about, baby. Roster about. Nobody knows about it. Roster about. Oh. Sorry, I was really feeling that. What do the lyrics mean, though? Well, one of the many things rousters might haul would be railroad ties or timber. If you carried them on the same shoulder every time, that side would get tired, so you'd want to switch it up. That's why he says, get your bone and tell me what shoulder you want it on, as there would be a man by the pile helping to load the rousters up. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and Charlie has a different favorite line that had to do with the rousters' work. I like the line about uh, the rousters' saying to the captain, you know, uh, captain, oh, captain, be so kind. Uh, Take all the cotton, leave the the seed behind, because they're talking about those heavy bags of seed, which you can't roll. You have to have them on your shoulders. And and the cotton, you know, you got your team. You can can roll it up and down the the levee. What about you, Ariel? Would you rather roll a 500-pound bale of cotton or tote a 120-pound bag of seed on your shoulder? Hmm, would neither have been an option?
Support for Middle of Everywhere comes from Kentucky Humanities. An affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Kentucky Humanities is dedicated to bringing the humanities to classrooms and communities across the state, promoting literacy and civil discourse, building pride in the Commonwealth, and telling all of Kentucky's stories. Learn more at kyhumanities.org. I got called downstairs because um, a visitor had a question. And uh, when I got downstairs, um, I was like, yes, ma'am, how can I help you? And and it was a younger black woman. And um, she goes, you know, I've been through your museum and I just want to know where are our stories? And, you know, just to make sure I was understanding, like, well, female, you know, African-American, like what stories? And, and she was talking about, you know, black persons on the river. And I was like, that is an excellent question. That's Crystal again from Paducah's River Discovery Center, sharing an experience that happened to her there recently. But Ariel, it's kind of something I wondered about too. Yeah, a lot of things come to mind for me when I think about steamboats and the rivers, like Mark Twain, Southern gentlemen and ladies, and really like the whole 1800s in general. But the stories of black workers who were so crucial to the industry, they don't get much attention Exactly. And because of some of the racial and social bias of history and historians of years past, there are a lot of holes. But those stories, as we talked before, are not easy to come by. And even the historians that did actually get to talk to some of these people who did this job as roustabouts, black persons who did this job as roustabouts, uh, those certain questions weren't asked. I mean, sometimes even like we only get their first name, not their last name. Um, we don't know what boats they worked on. We don't know, you know, we don't, we didn't, we weren't there, weren't able to ask those specific questions. And unfortunately, they're gone now. Most of them are that we know of are gone now, and we can't ask those questions. So, what can we do to revive some of this history? Or has this just been lost forever? Well, there probably aren't many, if any, people still living who were roustabouts at the end of the steamboat era in the 20s and 30s. But as Crystal highlighted, there is a value to family stories and histories that have been passed down. If anybody knows someone who did that job, an older person who did that job, and they would like to talk to you or me or whoever, you know, we would love to hear their story. We'd love to know what their perspective was on that job, especially during that time period. Though we've got some other examples of songs we've talked about, most of what is documented about roustabout music is the product of one woman's studies. In the 1930s, a well-educated and well-to-do woman from Paducah named Mary Wheeler set out to document a tradition that was familiar to her from living near the Ohio River for most of her life. But that tradition was quickly disappearing. She was pursuing her master's degree, and to craft her thesis, she began visiting the homes of former roustabouts, who were very old at the time, to collect songs. That's really interesting and quite amazing. Was her thesis preserved anywhere? Well, she completed it, and her studies were published in two volumes. The first called Roustabout Songs, and the second was Steamboatin' Days. While they were well-received in the folk music and academic community, much like the Roustabouts themselves, as time went on, they kind of faded to the background. But there are a few folks out there who are trying to keep the songs and stories alive. It seems pretty fortunate that we have those two books. Yeah, though some of the language she uses is a bit antiquated, and some have also criticized her use of African-American vernacular dialect in her transcriptions, she's still one of the few people who have looked critically at the music and culture surrounding the roustabouts. She was interviewed in the 1970s for an oral history project, and she felt the former roustabouts and chambermaids she talked to appreciated someone asking about this important part of their lives. 
And despite how difficult it was at times, they had a special affinity for the river and those days. They seemed to want to be there. And it was just part of their lives that the river would, was the thing that they loved, and that was their life. They knew it was a hard life, and it was, mm -hmm. but uh, I think they loved the river. One of the challenges with the Roustabout songs is something Mary admitted herself when she first transcribed them. What's that? Well, they're very topically specific to the riverboats and activities of that time and place, so it takes a little explanation or a basis of familiarity to truly understand them. But in the many decades since Mary's books, a handful of artists have utilized their own talent and styles to carry these songs forward. I want to play you a little montage of a few different versions of one particularly popular song that Mary Wheeler collected. It's called John Gilbert, which, as you will probably be able to surmise, was the name of a boat. John Gilbert is the boat, Dideo, Dideo. John Gilbert is the boat, Dideo. Running in the Cincinnati train. You, you see, see that, that boat a coming, she's coming round the bend, and when she gets in, she'll be loaded down again. John Gilbert is the boat, die dio, John Gilbert is the boat, die running in the Cincinnati train. You see that boat a coming, she's coming round the bend, loaded to the bottom with Louisiana men. John Gilbert is a boat, daddy oh, daddy oh. John Gilbert is a boat, daddy oh, running in the Cincinnati train. B.B. Cotton was a heckler, Captain Dutton was a captain. Billy Abbott was a headmate running the Cincinnati trade. She hauled peanuts and cotton, she hauled as much more. And when she got to Johnson, the work had just begun. John Gilbert is a boat, daddy oh, daddy oh. John Gilbert is a boat, daddy oh, running in the Cincinnati trade. She hauled so many that was really neat hearing all the different styles and tempos and interpretations of that song and it's super catchy so who did we just hear first was conrad tebow from the 1940s then we heard mary wheeler's niece bertha wenzel from the 1960s we also heard peggy seeger from 2003 and paducah's own wheelhouse rousters from 2014. Well, even though it doesn't seem like the Rousters' songs and stories have been widely appreciated, it's nice to see that there are people who have tried to keep their experiences alive. It'd be really nice to see more of that. We all know that history does not record people's stories equally, and that for many years, people of color were largely overlooked when it came to preserving culture and history. I'd like to think that our modern awareness of this failing has brought on some course correction. 
The black men and women who were roustabouts and chambermaids on the Mississippi and Ohio River steamboats of the 19th and early 20th century were the backbone of an entire industry. Though many of their stories have been lost, that only makes it more important to cherish and appreciate the aspects of their lives that were preserved. And the image I have in my mind of that steamboat culture, I think, will be forever changed now. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad that this is something that uh, we can continue to share. And it takes people talking about these parts of history to make them more well-known. Absolutely. I'd like to go out on one of the few first-person accounts we have from the Roustabouts. Here's Walter Brown with one more of his Rouster songs. Hey, get ready. Get ready to go. I got a great big load. I got a heavy toe. Get out of my way. Let my rock spout by. We got a thousand bales of cotton. And we got to ride. We gonna ride. We're going to Natchez. We're going to Big Spur. We're going to Natchez. We're going to Big Spur. We're going to Baton Rouge. We're going to drop right back. We're going to Arkansas City. We're going to Helena. We're going on up that nine, but don't get in the way of my rust bowl line. <laughs> you can find all the images in this episode on our website, middleofeverywherepod.org, or on Instagram and Facebook at middleofeverywherepod, and Twitter at rural underscore stories. If you want to be even more involved in the conversation, sign up for our newsletter so you'll always be the first to know about new episodes and interesting things going on at WKMS and in our region. Thanks to the Alan Lomax Collection, the Kentucky Oral History Commission, and the McCracken County Public Library for use of their recordings and special collections. This episode of Middle of Everywhere was produced by me, Austin Carter, with editorial help from my co-host, Ariel Lavery. Our editor is Naomi Starbin. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Time on the String Sound Studio in Paducah, Kentucky. Other scoring was from APM Music. Marketing and sponsorship support comes from Dixie Lynn. Middle of Everywhere is a production of WKMS and PRX. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private organization funded by the American people.